Okay, so hang in there. Uh, the material that we're going through, I know, can be very, very uh, challenging to keep everything straight as we continue to add terms to our repertoire. Uh, but once again, it seems like everyone is doing well. I hope that individually you think that you are in that case, and uh, so keep keep doing well. Uh, if any of you want to talk further about your individual grade or individual performance, please feel free to come by my office. I'm happy to sit down with you and, and go over whatever you might find helpful. We are still here in the procurement process, and I expect that we probably will be here today and, and probably Tuesday of next week, and then we'll be ready to move on to our next process. In fact, the last half of the semester will be uh, just talking about a set of processes and doing a deep dive on them. And uh, where we left off when we were last together was we had just wrapped up kind of the foundational concepts related to uh, the procurement process. We had talked about uh, conditions and other things of that sort, the master data associated with procurement. And so now we'll talk about just some foundational concepts and then jump into a discussion of the procurement process in, in depth here. And so one of the things that we see that's very important to us in the procurement process is the concept of, of item categories. And item categories allow us in our organization to differentiate the way that we buy certain products. You know, one of the things that I think is not ideal about your lab work is the lab work tends to focus on, okay, let's do buying using the standard order process. And we don't have you do third-party buying or consignment buying or subcontracting. Uh, simply because if we had you do every possible variation on everything, the labs would be five times longer. And although I'm sure you would enjoy that, um, there probably would not be enough hours in the day for you to get all of your work done. So realize that what you have done in your lab exercises and what you, you still will continue to do is engage in purchasing using what's just called the standard order process. And in fact, uh, not that you need to memorize the code, but the code OR is the one that goes with this. It's a standard order. And in fact, when you begin the process of creating an order on the very first screen, uh, you'll key that in as, as the way that you are going to actually be acquiring that particular material. But there are, in fact, other ways that we can purchase materials. And, and let me just show you this real quick Whoops, uh, in, in the system here. If we uh, were going to do some, some purchasing here, uh, logistics, I've got to drill down to the menu here and remember where these are. Material management, purchasing, um, purchase order, uh, create, um, vendor supplying plant known. Okay, right here in our purchase order, what, what you have done for the most part has been come here to the material field and put in the material and come over here to the purchase order quantity and put in the, the number there. And, and pretty much you haven't paid attention to any of the other fields here. And I would call to your attention that as you scroll to the right here, there's a whole lot of other things that we can specify on a line item basis 
in our purchasing process. We don't do that. Uh, we don't need to in most instances, but we do have a lot of abilities here that, that you have not taken advantage of. You'll notice here immediately to the left of material, if we hover over this column, it says item cat for item categories. And in fact, if I do a, a search help on that, you'll notice pops up standard, consignment, subcontracting, third-party service, the things that we're getting ready to talk about here. So in fact, if we wanted to purchase something through consignment, you do exactly what you have been doing, but instead of using the default, which is to leave it blank and have that just be a standard item that you're doing, um, we would just change it to perhaps uh, K for consignment and then key in the material, and then it would work just like the purchasing process that, that you have done to this point. So in our purchase orders, we can use the item categories to differentiate the process that we're going to actually be using here to procure the material. Consignment is something that perhaps some of you have experience with. There are, for example, antique stores, which I'm sure all of you frequent on on a weekly basis. Um, you see this a lot with uh, some kind of clothing stores. For some reasons, it's typically more associated with ladies' clothes and with like children's clothes where there are consignment stores where people bring in their merchandise and leave it in the store for the store to sell on their behalf. And so we have that same idea here. What actually happens in the consignment process is a vendor will deliver materials to us, but we don't have to pay for them at that point because we actually have not bought them at that point. And what's actually going to happen is when we get ready to use the items, then at that point we'll take them and we'll alert the vendor to the fact that we have just taken whatever this item is. And so um, now we, we have to send payment for that. So notice here a couple of things about, pay, about consignment. We pay for the materials only upon our using them or our selling them. And we don't get an invoice. We're kind of on the honor system in that when we use them, we have to send payment to the vendor. And of course, periodically, the vendor might come and spot check to make sure that we're being accurate in our reporting. Um, and a consignment store, the logistics of this is kind of interesting. Let's say I had some items I wanted to sell on consignment. I would bring it to the consignment store and negotiate with them, they might say, well, we think these items could sell for X dollars, and our policy is we'll put them on our shelves, and if someone buys them for that price, um, we'll get 50% and you get 50%. I don't know what the ratio is. I'm sure it varies widely from product to product and store to store. So they have an entire showroom full of stuff that they don't actually own. And in fact, they don't take ownership until right before they sell it. So it's kind of one of those odd business processes where what actually happens is the customer walks up to the cash register and says, I would like to buy this. And immediately before they sell it, they take ownership of it. So it's kind of one of those we've talked before about when title passes. Title happens in a really odd way here. The person who owns the clothing 
owns it still while it's sitting on the floor of the store and then when it gets sold the merchant takes ownership instantaneously and then passes ownership on to the actual customer let me ask you this it kind of goes beyond the procurement process here what are some of the implications of that just from a general business operating principle if we have a showroom full of stuff that we don't own it takes some of the liability off of me. Can you give me a specific example of a kind of liability it might take off of me? Um, for instance, if you had fire damage or something, um, you wouldn't be responsible for the product from before they got destroyed by fire or Absolutely, which means that I would not carry insurance for those things. So. Your scenario is a great one. If a fire, but not a great one, we don't want to see fire break out, but it's a good example. If a fire breaks out and burns up everything in the store, I, as the owner of the store, have insurance to pay for putting the store back together, but the people whose merchandise was burned up, that's on them. And that's all part of the consignment agreement that I would have them sign when they drop things off with me. So it's kind of an interesting ability for me to have a storeroom, a store full of stuff that I don't actually own. It's kind of a neat little business model, which is why consignment stores can actually do very well for themselves. Now, what that means, I think understanding what we just went through makes this quite obvious. From a financial accounting impact, I don't value the stock that's in my possession. Why don't I value it? I don't own it. You know, it's basically someone else's stuff that just happens to be sitting in my warehouse, in my storeroom, in my retail place. And so there's nothing in my financial accounting records that have anything to do with that merchandise until the time comes for me to actually sell it to a customer. So the stock is not in any way evaluated. I, I probably have some kind of inventory mechanism I use. It's very common in consignment stores to do things like they'll take merchandise from a customer and they'll say, we'll put it in our store for 90 days, and if it doesn't sell, you can come pick it up, and if you don't come pick it up within two weeks, we donate it to Goodwill. And they just kind of handle things in that fashion, and they don't actually own anything until right before they sell it. So we can use consignment as a way to acquire merchandise. Subcontracting, yes, sir? Uh, just an interesting little story about consignment. And you can understand if, if you don't really own it, valuing it in your balance sheet is clearly fraud like you're talking about. And so, uh, yeah, great example of, of that. Subcontracting. Now, subcontracting, um, I'll read you the definition, then I'll explain the scenario here. The materials originate with the purchaser. Then we send them out to another company. They do something with it and then send it back to us. Okay. So you could, for example, imagine um, a business that already has, let's say, some equipment. 
and they need for the equipment to be overhauled. Maybe it's a forklift that needs to be rebuilt. We already own the forklift, so the materials originate with us, the purchaser. But we send that forklift off and have another company work on it, fix it up, paint it, do whatever it is they're going to do for it, and then they bring it back to us. So from a purchasing perspective, it's almost like we're purchasing something we already own. Um, a lot of times you'll see like auto shops, that an auto shop won't do the body work. So someone brings a car to them and they send it to a body shop, have the body work done, and then they do their work on it. Or they don't paint cars. So they do a part of the work, they send it off to another company, that company brings it back, and then they continue their work. So subcontracting is the idea that the merchandise starts with us, we send it off to another company, they're going to do something to that, send it back to us, and of course at that point we have to pay for it. So it's kind of a, it, well it's not kind of, it is a form of purchasing, but we're purchasing something that we already owned in the first place. Now what makes this unique is we actually have an outbound shipment. Now it's not a goods issue because we're not changing title. We own the material even when it's in the possession of this third party. So we have an outbound shipment of material to be provided and then the vendor will pick it up or will deliver it to the vendor and then at some point it will come back to us in the form of a goods receipt and we'll get an invoice and we'll pay for it just like we do in other forms of, of purchasing. Third party is an item category where we actually never touch the merchandise. There are a lot of internet sales companies that operate on this basis where they will take an order from a customer and make sure that the customer gets what they ordered but they don't get it directly from the vendor. The vendor has another company that ships it directly to the customer and then they turn around and pay the vendor. So from the customer's perspective, they think they're dealing with company A when really it's company B that fulfills it. And in fact, Amazon does this a lot. Um, you place an order with Amazon, you think you're dealing directly with Amazon and in fact, if you're not paying attention to the screens and all, a lot of times it's not, you know, you don't even know this but you paid you did everything through Amazon but it's actually another company that's fulfilling your order so in this situation the, the term we use for what I just described is drop shipping drop shipping is where a vendor delivers directly to the end customer without me the vendor ever actually taking possession of it so I sell something that not only did I never own, I, I never possessed in any form at all. So the vendor drop ships directly to our customer, which means that there's no goods receipt. A customer orders from us, we turn around and order from another company and say, hey, ship it directly to this other address, and then they send us the bill and we pay it. So at no point in that process will we ever have a goods receipt. We'll get an invoice and we have to pay the invoice, but if we're waiting around for the goods receipt, that's never going to happen. And so we have to strictly pay based on the invoice that, that we are sent. Of course companies, well I'm sorry, getting ahead of myself here, stock transfer is another kind of purchasing. This one's a little bit different. It's considered procurement 
although it would be typically fall into the category uh, of what we would call internal procurement because we are in essence buying it from ourselves um, we're just transferring um, stock um, there's a couple of different ways that this could happen um, it says internal company code transfers between plants and and what you can actually do with a stock transfer is you could have one company code transfer to another company code you could have one plant transfer to another plant and those plants could be under the same company code or they could be under different company codes so this can play out a lot of different ways but it's an internal transfer within our organization now we still have to particularly if it's a company code to company code transaction we still have to take care of the financial accounting implications of this so we're not really going to get an invoice we're not really going to cut a check and mail payment but we are going to have to in our financial accounting records record the fact that we no longer own this and this other entity in our organization does and we'll talk about that a little bit later in the semester it's a uh, surprisingly a fairly complex transaction because there are a couple of different ways that we can record this in in financial accounting the last thing that we can purchase is, is services. Now, what makes this distinct is we're not actually buying goods. You know, the idea here might be we pay someone to come and uh, paint the inside of our factory, or we hire someone to come and do maintenance in-house for some of our materials. So in this situation, there's no goods receipt associated with this. Um, we might send out a purchase order or something akin to a purchase order to a vendor to authorize them to come in and do the work and, and uh, signify the price that we are going to pay and so on. But then when the work is done, we don't have a goods receipt, so we memorialize that the work has been finished in something called a service sheet and typically that would involve you know okay you're supposed to paint the plant somebody's going to walk around and inspect and make sure that it was done properly and if it was they record a service sheet in the system that says job well done and that serves as a good receipt and we wait till we get an invoice from the vendor and and we pay it the whole point of having different item categories is as implied or stated in all of these different bullet points here the process plays out just subtly different sometimes we have goods receipts sometimes we don't have goods receipts sometimes we have good issue sometimes we we get an invoice sometimes we don't get an invoice so the item categories allow us to differentiate that in our purchasing processes questions about any of this yes sir Subcontract, want me to go over that again? Okay, um, an example of subcontracting might be, let me give you an example that would be hypothetical for this room. At the end of the semester, somebody from ETSU comes in and says, man, these desks are in horrible condition. Um, half of them are broken, they're missing screws. We don't want to throw them away, but we need to have them fixed. So we take all these desks and we load them up in a truck and we send them to another company they fix them up and send them back to us and we put them back in this room so in that situation we bought something but we we owned the desks the whole time 
So we weren't buying something that actually is new to us. We were actually buying the fixing slash enhancing of something we already owned. So the distinction in subcontracting is the material starts with us, it's something we already own, and then we send it off, it gets fixed, and, and comes back to us. That's the idea. Make sense? Okay. Yes, sir. Interesting. So one of the bonuses in this class is you learn how to defraud the government at some point. So good story, not a story for anyone to go out and actually try. I'm imagining that the government it looks out for stuff like that happening. Okay. Those are what auditors, I would assume, are paid to, uh, paid to catch. I've heard that. I've heard that if you are inclined to, I shouldn't say this being recorded because I, to be clear, I never ever do this, but I've heard that if you are inclined to cheat on your taxes, now's a good time to do it because there aren't enough IRS agents to investigate. But just once again, to be clear, I always pay my taxes, 100%. Matter of fact, I send the government more than they asked me to. I am nothing I am nothing <laughs> like a gangster, just to be clear about all of that. This is going to be like Exhibit A in the trial. I just know it. All right. This next slide, really, 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 really important concept. So put a big star in your brain or on your paper next to this because we want to talk about the concept of stock materials versus consumable materials. And, and so this is something that we want to have a good understanding of because it's very, very important in a lot of things that will follow. A stock material is something that we buy typically for resale, but it doesn't have to be for resale. But clearly the most volume of things that are going to fall into this category would be items that we buy to resale. But the key is a stock materials item purchased typically for resale that we put in inventory and we value as an asset. So if I own a store, and it's not a consignment store like we were just talking about, I own a traditional store and I'm planning on selling motorcycles in my store. Well, I buy motorcycles and I put them on my showroom floor. While they are in my possession, I own them, they're an asset. And they show up in my financial records as an asset that I own. Now, stock materials have a material master. That's a requirement of a stock material. Anything that I buy that I am going to record as an asset 
in my financial accounting record keeping, I have to have a material master for it. So all of the motorcycles that are sitting on the floor in my motorcycle shop have a material master. I've given them a material number and they are recorded as assets in my record keeping. This is just a reiteration of something we talked about before, but the material master is going to have a valuation class on it, and that valuation class is going to be what maps back to my balance sheet. So for example, in my motorcycle shop, I might have motorcycles, and I might have um, accessories, things like helmets and other stuff like that. And I might have, what else would you have in a motorcycle shop? Um, anymore, you have like a lot of clothing items for people that can't actually afford motorcycles, but like dressing like people that do have motorcycles. So you have a lot of clothing and stuff. All of those things are assets. They're on my store available for sale. I have a material master for every one of those things. As we observed before, the valuation class maps the material to an account where the material value is reflected. So all of my motorcycles might be in valuation class 1,000. All of my accessories might be in valuation class 2,000. All of my clothing might be in valuation class 3,000. And everything in valuation class 1,000 maps to a line item on my balance sheet called motorcycles. And Everything in valuation class 200 maps to a line item on my balance sheet called motorcycle accessories. And we talked about that before, so I don't think we need to go through it in detail here. The above mapping is done through automatic account determination. So in the material master, we put down the valuation class. And so anytime I'm buying or selling these things, the value is going to be automatically reflected in my general ledger based on the account determination process. Now, this is distinct from stock material, or excuse me, consumer, oh, hang on, I'm getting ahead of myself. Let's just keep going here. For stock material, an inventory count is kept and an inventory valuation is kept. Okay, so inventory count means I have 10 of these. I have 12 of these jackets. I have 15 of these helmets. I have 17 of these gloves. That's what I mean when I say inventory count. Now, you've seen this in some of your lab work. I can look up how much inventory is contained in a particular storage location. I can look up how much inventory is stored in a particular plant. I can look up how much inventory is stored in a given company code. So inventory count is tracked depending upon the location of the material and storage location, plant, or company code, and this kind of all rolls up. There might be eight storage locations in a plant, so when I look at it on the storage location level, I see it differentiated by different storage location. When I look at it on the plant level, it just shows me how much is owned by and possessed by that plant. Inventory valuation, however, is tracked at the company code level. Why? Financial accounting, okay? You know, once again, we're applying that rule here. Inventory valuation means the dollars that this is worth. It's important that we realize that although there clearly is a relationship between count and dollars, 
they're tracked totally differently. Okay? I only keep track of valuation at the company code level because that's all I care about it is for the context of financial accounting. So I keep count in the levels that you see represented in this discussion here, but when it comes to the actual valuation of the material, I only keep track of that uh, on the company code level. So everything we've been talking about on this slide are stock materials. All right. Now that is different than consumable materials. Consumable materials are things that I buy for consumption in my business. So this would be things like paper for the printer, um, chemicals to put in the mop bucket to use to mop the floor. Um, whatever it is that I use to clean the motorcycles periodically to make sure they look really, really nice. Um, maybe before I deliver a motorcycle to a customer, I top off the oil and I do other things like that. And so I buy those kinds of things. Those items are called consumable materials. Now, consumable materials may have a material master and may not have a material master. It's totally at my discretion. So if I buy a lot of mopping solution and I want to create a material master for Mr. Clean mopping solution and a five gallon bucket, I can do that, but I don't have to. I do not have to have a material master for consumable materials. Yes, sir. Absolutely, but it is important to realize that, let's say we're talking about Office Depot. Is Office Depot still in business? I know one of those office places went out. Office Depot. Office Depot buys ink cartridges to sell, which would make that a stock material, and then they buy ink cartridges to use in printers that they use in doing business. So we can't just say ink cartridges are always this or always that. We have to think about how it's actually used in, in the business. Now, consumable materials. Even if we have a material master, we do not value these items as an asset. So what we are now talking about is the distinction between what is called, and the word here is really kind of, of awkward. We have valuated versus non-valuated materials. A valuated material is an item that I track in my financial accounting records as an asset. A non-valuated material is something that I buy and use, but I don't track it as an asset. Consumption is tracked in the material master record if I have a material master record. So here's the idea. Let's stick with um, inkjet cartridges. Okay, I run a business and we have several printers. And so um, for inkjet cartridges, I elect to create a material master. And so I have a material master for that item. When I go out and buy some of those, let's say I had zero and I bought 10, the material master will reflect that I own 10 of these guys, 
but it will not associate a dollar amount with that because I don't value these in that way. All I do is keep track of the count. And then as I consume the items, I will record that in the system so that this 10 turns to 9 and the 9 turns to 8 and the 8 turns to a 7 and eventually I, I get down to 0 but there is no FI value here. Now that's what I do if I have a material master which raises the next obvious question which is what? What if I don't have a material master? Where do I keep track of the count? You're just saying that because that's the answer to 95% of the questions I ask you. No, definitely not financially. Well, that's not a good answer. It, everything eventually shows up somewhere in financial accounting, but no. Where do I keep track of it? It's a very, very logical answer. The answer is, I don't, okay? I've got no place to keep track of it. I buy this stuff and I have to record the financial accounting implication, but as far as how many of these I have on hand right now, somebody's got to go check the closet and see. Because nowhere in my system will it tell me how many of those I have on hand. Which is why I might want to create a material master. Because if I create a material master, then at least I can keep count of this. But, you know, let's face it. If I run a store and every few months, well, that's probably too infrequent. Well, every few months I buy a 50-gallon drum of mopping solution. You know, I, I don't want to waste my time creating material master. I just, every once in a while, the janitor will say, hey, we're running low on mopping solution and we'll order more. And so I don't need a material master. I don't care about keeping count of things. I can do that. With consumable materials, I do not have to have a material master. So I don't have material master. I don't keep track of the, the item as an asset. But obviously, when I buy these things, I, I have to pay for them. So how does that work? Well. Essentially what happens is when I buy them, I expense them immediately. So I have two different things that can happen when I purchase things. I can buy things and classify them as an asset, or I can buy things and immediately expense it. You know, I go out and buy, that's annoying, that little line thing that pops up periodically, that's one of the new features in PowerPoint 2016. You can tell it to automatically draw shapes for you and I've got to figure out how to tell it not to do that. So that's a aside. That was free, your bonus for today. I can uh, assets or I can expense it. So when I go out and buy a new 50-gallon drum of mopping solution, I just expense it right away in my financial accounting records. I don't keep track of it as an asset. So if I expense it, what does that mean? Well, expenses somebody has to be on the hook for those expenses. So this item has to be assigned to an account assignment object, which basically means I have to designate who is on the hook 
for this particular material. And I'll say more about that in a moment, but let me just show you this real quick in the system as an illustration of what we've been talking about here. And it's, it's a, a good example of something that you won't do in your lab work here, but you've done some creating of materials. Now, largely you have created materials by copying from other materials, but notice that one of the things that's here is defining the type of the material. Notice if we come down here, one of the things that I can, I can create a material master for is a non-valuated material. Okay? That, that's what we're talking about here. A consumable material is non-valuated, so I'm only going to keep track of, of the units that I buy. So when I'm buying something that is non-valuated, on my purchasing document, I will assign every line item. You know, if there are three different items being purchased here that are all non-valuated, non I will say this line item is assigned to this project. And so they're going to be charged the cost for that. And this line item is charged to this cost center right here. And this line item is charged to this particular asset. And so we designate that when we make the particular purchase on the actual purchasing document itself. Now, time to put your thinking cap on. We are talking about non-valuated materials, things that I buy to consume. What do I mean when I say we can assign it to an asset? Think about that for a second and see if you could come up with an explanation. A machine that needs oil or needs air filters to be changed or needs belts to be changed, I buy those things, I expense them, and I charge them to that asset. I charge them to that machine as part of the upkeep of that asset. A project, we're working on a project, the project team, you know, they need pizza for lunch, we buy that, we're not going to capitalize the pizza for the two minutes that it sits on the table before people eat it, so we immediately expense it, and we expense it to the project that everybody's working on. So everything that we buy that we are not going to capitalize, that we're not going to classify as an asset, we assign to an account assignment object, that captures that for the sake of later reporting and in our cost accounting structure. Questions? Yes, sir. My answer would be, it really depends on the logistics of the operation. Meaning that, and I know this isn't the case from what you've told me before with PALS, but scenario A is maybe I own five different restaurants in an area, and so I have my own distribution center and I buy stuff, bring it into the distribution center, and then once a week or more frequently than that, I send it out to the individual restaurants. As things come into my distribution center, I might record them as assets. And then when I disperse them out to the individual restaurants, I, I treat that as consuming the item. 
And so in that case, it would be just like buying an asset and selling an asset. In an individual operation where what you just have is a restaurant, um, I'm going to guess in a lot of situations, you would treat your inventory like an asset. Um, but really that gets into where you'd have to hire someone with accounting expertise for them to go through what might be various options associated with it. But you know, 300 pounds of ground beef in a, in a storage freezer is an asset. You know, it has value. And on some level, we, um, you know, we periodically take inventory so we know how much we have and we do keep track of it in that way. But there are different rules here where like if what you're buying is below a certain amount of money, you know, this is where you get into different IRS rules and other things like that about what you can write off as an expense and what you have to classify as an asset and so on. Other questions? And that's good. Making applications like this that, that you anyone can do individually, I think, is a good way to keep all of this, all of this straight. Stock type slash stock status. Now, this is one of those really funny things that I don't know that I can give you a good answer for. The term that we are talking about right now is actually referred to as stock type. That is what the screens in SAP call this. But almost everyone that I have ever talked to calls this stock status. So just be aware that stock type is the official term, but stock status seems to be what everybody calls it. And I think it's because of what this actually is. When I buy materials, and for that matter, and when I store merchandise, I want to have the ability to differentiate the actual condition that that item is in. Let me give you an example. Um, this is not an exhaustive list here, unrestricted use, quality inspection, block stock, and stock in, tra in transit. We can actually have um, what's called reserved stock. And I want to talk about reserved stock because it falls into the category of something you did with ERP SIM. Do you remember with ERP SIM, when you were doing the MRP process and putting in your sales forecasts and all of that sort, the system would go through and look at what you had on hand and the things that were queued up for production, and it would take those into account in doing its calculation. So the idea might be something like this. You told your factory that tomorrow you wanted it to make 25,000 boxes of blueberry muesli. Well, when you issued a production order for that to happen, the system went out and checked to see if it had the raw materials needed. And you might remember that if it did the check and it didn't find the material sufficient to do that, it wouldn't let you convert and create the production order. But if it let you convert and make the production order, that was its telling you, you have the raw materials available. What it also did is it went out and reserved those materials so that they would be ready tomorrow for you to use. And basically, it wouldn't let any other process 
or any other entity take those materials because they were reserved for your production run that was going to start the next day. We differentiate things like items that are unrestricted use or they're reserved. Those are stock types or stock statuses. So in our particular organization, we might, everything that we get in, we might want to inspect it before we formally put it into our inventory. And so as we receive merchandise, we might put it in something called quality inspection. And then after it passes quality inspection, then it will go, if it passes, it will go into unrestricted use. If it doesn't pass, it will go into block stock, which means that it's no good, we're going to send this back to the manufacturer. Now we still have to keep track of this because when the manufacturer shows up the next week and says, hey, you told us we sent you 10 bad boxes of blueberries, we're here to take those back, you can't say, oh, I don't know where those are. We have to have a place to put them. We have to keep track of them. And so stock type slash stock status gives us a way of classifying things. Stock in transit, pretty straightforward. This is blueberries or whatever have you that I've put on a truck and they're moving from point A to, to point B. When you look at the material master and in the plant stock view, you actually see these individual items. Um, and let me show you this real quick. I think we can, we can look at this pretty quick here. Uh, logistics, material management, uh, material master, material display, display current. Okay, I need a material that I am most likely going to have in stock. So I will pick elbow pads. Okay. And um, plant stock view is where I'm going to see this. So I'll actually only focus on the plant stock view here. And it asks me what plant. And um, looks like I might have these in Miami and I might have these in, well, it looks like just Miami actually. So I'll pick that. All right, and so here we go, right here. Unrestricted, I have 30. In quality inspection, zero. Blocked, zero. Return, zero. Stocks in transfer, zero. Unrestricted consignment. Here's things referencing consignment. Um, consignment in inspection, blocked in con block consignment, stock in transit. So, so you see the idea. We, you know, it keeps track of. Okay, we have these many units of this particular item, but here's the actual status of, of those items. And we can find that for a given material in the plant stock view. If I want to change the stock type of a material, if I want to take something that is in quality inspection and say, yeah, it passed quality inspection, let's move it into, stock, into unrestricted use, I actually do that through a goods movement, which is really, really kind of odd. Because as a point of fact, the merchandise may not move at all. It may just sit there, and I magically transform it from being in quality inspection to unrestricted use. But uh, a goods movement is the transaction that allows me to change the value of a stock 
or its, or its status. So one of the things to file away in your brain is kind of an odd observation, is that goods movements don't always actually mean that something is actually moving. It could just mean a movement in terms of the logical classification of the item in the way that we record it in our, our system. Questions? Soon we will get to the actual purchasing process itself. We have a couple more things here to cover. Um, goods movements. Here's the really, really fun thing about goods movements. And let me show you this before. Notice my, my uh, slide is titled Four Types of Goods Movements. That is really, really, really misleading. Okay, uh, logistics, material management, um, looking for inventory management, goods movement, goods movement. Okay, see up here, this gives me the ability to record a, a goods movement. The, the transaction itself is called goods receipt, but notice up here in the upper right-hand corner, uh, goods receipt, and I've got this three-digit number here. A goods movement is always a three-digit number. For goods receipt, there are 276 different goods movement types. Okay? You say, why in the world do we need all of these? And the fact is, you're, you're not going to use every one of these in an organization. But if you look at this, goods receipt for purchase order into warehouse. Goods receipt for purchase order into warehouse reversal, meaning, oops, we shouldn't have done that. Goods receipt for purchase order into goods receipt block stock. Uh, goods receipt for purchase order, goods receipt block stock reversal. Goods receipt block stock for warehouse. Goods receipt block stock for warehouse reversal. So we have to figure out, okay, what kind of goods movement this is, and there are all of these different three-digit numbers that we use to classify goods movement. Now, why in the world do we care so much about this? And the answer to that lies in the fact that a significant element of ERP software is helping us keep track of where stuff is, how it's valued, and what we can and cannot do with it. And so goods movements are something that we can be very, very fine-grained in classifying in our record-keeping system. Now, there's a whole set of goods movements, as we just saw, related to goods receipt. Without getting into the nuances of all of them, the basic principle here is a goods receipt is when we get something. Now, that could be something that came to us from a vendor, or it could be something that came to us from our own production. But regardless, if we're working in the warehouse, something is now being offloaded from a truck, most likely, onto our dock, and we are receiving it. The stock is therefore increased whenever we get a goods receipt. The value may be increased. Why do I say the value may be increased? Because we can have goods receipt for valuated items. We can have goods receipt for non-valuated items. We still receive it. We order the 50-gallon drum of, of floor cleaner, and we have to receive it, but we don't track its value in our record-keeping system. Goods issue 
is outbound movement of goods. In this case, the material is withdrawn from our inventory and it's either consumed or it's turned over to some other external entity, most likely a customer. So in this situation, our, our stock is, is decreased. So when it comes time for us to engage in production, the warehouse will retrieve all of the raw materials that we need and will issue those to production. So they leave the warehouse, they're turned over to production, and then the next day, the people from the production line come back and give us 25,000 boxes of finished blueberry muesli. And so we have a goods receipt associated with getting that, bottom, getting that product back. A stock transfer is a type of goods movement, but this is where we're just laterally moving things between storage areas. It's internal to the organization. So I'm going to take things out of finished goods 01 and put it in storage locations finished goods 10, maybe because I need to clean the floor in, in finished goods 01 and to, to get access to the floor, I just got to move things out of the way. Every time something moves, I have to memorialize it in the system because if I do not, I run the risk of losing it. And companies that are diligent in this, you know, they really, really take this to heart. If you literally are going to do what I just said, which is move something out of an area for the sake of cleaning it, and then you're going to put it right back in. If that's going to take more than a very short period of time, we need to record a stock transfer because otherwise we run the risk of employee A starts the job, goes home, employee B finishes and puts the stuff back in a different location and now we can't find it. And it's, as, it's gone at that point. Once we can't find it where it's supposed to be, it's disappeared and we likely will never ever see it again. A transfer posting gives us the ability to change material status. So going back to what we talked about on the last slide, if I just need to change something from being in unrestricted stock to block stock or anything else of that sort, I, I call that a transfer posting. And transfer postings allow us to change the material status or, or um, and so, um, That's interesting, my, my hard copy doesn't match the electronic version here, I must have changed it. A transfer posting is the only type of goods movement that can change a material status. So if I am doing a stock transfer, the implication here is that this is going from one location to another, but it started out as unrestricted inventory and it's going to end up as unrestricted inventory. If I need to change the status, I'm going to have to do that with, with a transfer posting great quiz question or exam question right there you know what kind of goods movement allows us to change the material status only a transfer posting uh, allows us to do that questions all right last little bit here material documents material documents are where we keep track of all the things that we have been talking about here so in the material document we'll have a document number who created it a date you know basic kind of record keeping there but then the guts of this is we'll have a quantity we'll have a material we'll have a location and we'll have a movement type 
So, you know, we might have down, we're doing 50 of material STQR10, and the location here is FG01 in plant P1, and it's goods movement. I'll just put here goods receipt, um, maybe 151 as the movement type. And so every time things move around, every time a material, anything happens to it in our possession where we change the type, we move it from point A to point B, stuff's coming in, stuff's coming out, it is always, always, always memorialized in a material document. Let's look at this just real quickly to see and realize that these material documents are for the most part created automatically by virtue of us selling something. And so we do a goods issue and a material document is going to be created. Um, we ship out a material, a material document is going to be created. So if we go into uh, logistics, material management, um, inventory management, uh, material document is where I want to go here, display. Okay, and so I could put in a particular material document if I knew a material document number. I'll search for one here. And uh, let's see how little it will let me get away with putting in to look at a list of material documents here. Okay, I have to restrict my selection in some way. So let's see if I restrict it to just my uh, Dallas plant. Let's see if it'll let me get away with that. Uh, okay, so here's a whole bunch of different material documents associated with goods movements or other material actions in my Dallas plant. And so I could double click on this and so that's this particular material document and here's the items. Here's all of the different things here, bolts and brake kits and whatever. And what happened to them? Well, this is goods movement number 561. What's that? I don't know what it is. Uh, look at my little table here. Goods movement 561 is initial entry of stock balance. This comes from that transaction that you guys did and I did where we went in and just said, oh yeah, we have 20 of these and we have 40 of these and so on. And so this came from that particular transaction we ran. If I, if I look at another material document here, let's see if we can find something a little bit different. Um, Uh, goods movement 261. What's this? Uh, 261 is um, GI for order. So this is a um, goods inventory for order and FI, the minus sign here tells me this is a goods issue. So this is a goods issue for an order and so I sent touring tires and tubes and aluminum wheels and hex nuts and lock washers. Looks like I'm making some bicycles is what's going on here. And if I wanted to find out more, I could drill into details and, and dig into that further. But anytime there's any kind of transaction that involves materials moving around or other things of that sort, it is captured in a material document. And that is concepts related to procurement. And I don't know why I even have a slide there for procurement reporting because we will talk about that a little bit later. What we are going to talk about now is the procurement process in depth. So I wanted to make sure we got here for today. Any questions before we jump into that though? 
Okay, at long last, the procurement process. This is a diagram that you will find in your textbook that is well worth your spending some time looking at as you are going through the material. This steps through the basic steps in the procurement process. So the procurement process begins, like every process, with, with a trigger. Now the trigger could come from the fulfillment process. What do we mean by that? Well, the fulfillment process means we have an order from a customer and we're supposed to ship them out 10 of something and, and we don't have them. So we need to procure them in order to turn around and sell them to the customer. If this is a trading good and we are a make-to-order company, uh, that would be a very, very typical transaction for us. So we might get uh, procurement process request from fulfillment. We might get it from production. We need to make something and we need raw materials. We might get it from the material planning process, which would be the MRP process or other kind of material planning. But nonetheless, the trigger will result in the creation of a purchase requisition, which will outline what our requirements determination is. So what do I need? What quantity do I need? describe the item that's needed, and perhaps put down the reason for the need. The next step in the process here is, do I know where I am getting this from? And if I do, I take this little yes path here, and I move on to creating the purchase order. If I don't know the source of supply, then I have to figure out where I'm going to get it from, which might mean sending out a request for a proposal, for vendors to send me quotes for the item, um, and I get back quotations that'll tell me who can sell the item to me. But regardless, if I know the source of supply or don't know the source of supply, ultimately I have to pick a vendor. And then for that vendor, I send them a purchase order. That will result in goods receipt. I will get an invoice, which I verify. I then pay for the invoice and the end. Down here is the really, really fun part. I have FI documents, CO documents, material documents, and transaction documents. They are created all throughout this process, and that's one of the things that we are going to focus on here. Just as a quick aside, let's see if we could uh, play this little video game together here, make it fun, um, because this is undoubtedly very fun. Um, which steps? in this process do you think will create keyword being create material documents I see lots of people staring very intently at the screen which is good Will anyone hazard a guess now? Yes, I see you want to play the game. Yes, sir. What is your assertion as to the correct answer? Goods receipt. Yes, very good. Goods receipt will generate a material document. Good job. FI document. This shows up more than one place. Where will FI documents be created in this process? Payment processing, absolutely. 
Invoice verification, absolutely. One more place. Goods receipt, very good. And so we'll talk more about this, but one of the things that you need to be able to do when we're done with all of this is know which documents are actually created where and what those documents are going to be signifying and, and having as their value here. So let's just take this apart piece by piece and talk about some of the interesting things with the purchasing process. The first part of the process back here at the beginning, requirements determination. Okay, so the basic idea is we get a requirement from some other process or it's a manually determined requirement. Um, it, it could be something as simple as we hired a new employee and they need a desk to sit at. And so they requisition a desk and we order them one. Or it could be like we talked about a moment ago, we need to manufacture a particular product. And so the MRP process has told us what the requirements are. Now, the data that is going to be contained in this requirements determination, we're going to have some data that's going to come to us from the user. This would be things like the quantity of the need, the date of the need, the delivery location where it's needed, and, and there likely will be some master data here because we may be referencing material master information, but we certainly are going to reference other things as well like company codes and things of that sort. The overall goal of this particular step in the process is, is to create a purchase requisition. And so what's going to come out of this is the creation of a purchase requisition. Now, although there's lots of different ways this can play out in organizations, it is very, very typical for companies to use the MRP process to create purchase requisitions. If you have an ERP product that your company has invested in, and if you are a manufacturing company, you want to use that ERP product to help you automate your requirements determination. You know, why would you spend all of this money on all of this software to do it any other way? So manufacturing companies do MRP runs to help plan their, their, their purchasing. Uh, I heard uh, a couple of years ago an, a story by a gentleman who worked at Steelcase. They make desks and probably the things that you guys are sitting at were made by Steelcase or one of their competitors. They have all kinds of different furniture and other things like that that they make. This gentleman said that for them, a typical MRP run from the time they said go until they got the results would take 8 to 12 hours because of all the evaluation the system had to do, all the things it had to look at, all the things it had to calculate. A human could do that, but it would take a whole lot longer than 8 to 12 hours to do that. So companies want to do this by way of the investment that they've made in their enterprise information system. Important fact here, a purchase requisition is an internal document. So there is no external obligation associated with the creation of a purchase requisition. And in fact, a purchase requisition can be canceled. 
a new employee says, hey, I'd like a desk, and puts in a requisition for one, and the boss says, no, you're just going to sit at this folding table until we decide if we're really going to keep you. And the boss voids the purchase requisition. So it's just a planning document, which means that we can alter it, we can delete it, we can discard it, because we haven't in any way obligated ourselves. We may requisition items that we have a material master for, which means that I could turn in a requisition for I need 10 MM427s. I have a material master for that item. It's well defined in my company. 10, okay, they're going to order that. So if I have a material master, then I can reference that. But what if it's something that I don't have material master for? Like what we were just talking about, we need more mopping solution. I can create a purchase requisition that just describes what I want bought. Buy me a 50-gallon drum of, of floor washing solution. So you can create a purchase requisition that doesn't have actually a material number, just has freeform text typed in. And it might be that you know the employee says, I want a new desk. He doesn't have a material number to give us, but he might say, you know, I want a desk. It needs to be these general dimensions. I'd like to have a file drawer. Um, it needs to, you know, have these attributes and turns that in. And then it's the job of a human being that works in purchasing to actually find the item that matches that description for the company to purchase. Very, very, very important fact here. There is no financial accounting and no cost accounting impact to creating a purchase requisition. Okay, let's just parse that part of the sentence here first. So I haven't obligated myself in any way. It's a planning document. I'm saying, hey, I, I think I want to buy this. So there's no financial accounting information that's recorded here. There's no cost accounting impact here. But notice the second part of my sentence there in parentheses, unless commitment management is being used. So let's talk about commitment management here for a moment. And let's imagine for the sake of argument that you work for a company and your job is managing the company's cash on hand, which is actually a job at really, really big companies. And so you, you look at a particular record in the general ledger and you see that right now you can't write with a whiteboard marker and so I will go back to I'll just write on the screen here for this so you look in your bank ledger and you say right now we have 10 million dollars in the bank and next week we have money going out to vendors and all and the money going out is is going to be approximately two million dollars so in your mind, you're thinking, wow, I've got $8 million sitting around that I need to park somewhere. Well, people that do this kind of work, they do all kinds of planning here associated with when do I think I'll actually need this money. Companies like Apple have a giant mountain of money. They don't want to just like put that under the CEO's mattress in, in his house, okay? They need to find a, a place to park it where it's going to earn money. So how long do I have this $8 million? 
if I look at my cash flow planning for the next six months and I say, you know, it's going to be about three or four months down the road before we have to make a big payment on this thing that we've bought. So I actually have about 120 days. And so I'll put this money somewhere knowing that I can leave it there for 120 days, which opens up different kinds of financial instruments to me. You can understand in working through this where I might want to know likely cash outflows that my company is going to incur in the future. Now, these might be things that I'm just planning to buy. But still, if I think it's likely that I'm going to actually purchase something 90 days from now that's going to cost a million dollars and I'm going to have to pay for it up front, that will influence what I do with this, with this cash. So what I have the option to do is in my ERP system, I can turn on commitment management. When I turn on commitment management, the system will now begin to keep track of things that are likely to have an impact on my cash flow in the future, even though it's, it's not definite. So in this situation, if someone creates a purchase requisition for $150,000 worth of stuff, there's no FI impact, there's no CO impact, but the system will note in the context of commitment management, hey, we're thinking about spending $150,000. So keep this on your radar. That might be something we have to pay for in the near future. Companies can turn this on or turn this off and do so in different contexts. But the basic idea is it gives us a way to infer things related to cash flow from planning documents. And so in all of this, I realize it's not a firm commitment. It's not something I'm definitely obligated to, but if I turn it on, it gives me an idea of what kinds of commitments might be coming my way in the future. No material documents generated or changed. So if we go back to this diagram right here, requirements determination, we get a purchase requisition out of this step. There are no FI documents created. There are no CO documents created. There are no material documents created. Um, the purchase requisition is a transaction document because it's associated with that particular transaction. What's on a purchase requisition? Don't want to spend a lot of time talking about this. Uh, this is a diagram that you find in your book. Um, we will have perhaps coming from the material master, and the reason why I put here perhaps is because maybe we're buying or wanting to buy something that doesn't have a material master. But if we have a material master for the item, then we'll put down the description of the item and, and, and we'll be able to capture data related to the price of the item and other things of that sort. The vendor master, once again, perhaps if I know who I'm going to buy this from, I could put that on the purchase requisition. But if I don't know who I'm going to buy it from, then, then I would omit that. I'm definitely going to have to put down organizational data. I'm going to have to put down the company code and the plant so that I know, you know who it is that's going to be on the hook for this particular item. And then the main thing here is from the user, the user is going to give me uh, the material number if they know that. If they don't know the material number, then they're just going to describe the item. 
the quantity, the dates, the receiving plant, uh, all of those things are, are going to come into play here as well. If I know who the vendor going to be assigned is, and I know that it's something I have a material master for, then I might consult the purchasing information records to find out more about my relationship with buying that item from that particular vendor. But a lot of these things here that could be on the purchase requisition will depend upon what I know at the time the purchase requisition is created. The only things that really have to be there are certain aspects of the organizational data and the information from the user that they have to put in to define the item that they want purchased. Questions? Pretty straightforward stuff. Uh, next step. We've got to convert the purchase requisition to a purchase order. And in order to do that, we've got to know who we are going to send this order to. So this is called source determination. The supplier has to be designated to convert a purchase request to a purchase order. Purchase requests don't have to specify a vendor. Typically, you don't want them to specify a vendor. You want the system to figure that out for you or someone working in purchasing to do that. But in order to create a purchase order, we have to know what vendor this is going to. So companies will have a source list. This can be maintained by the system. And so we have a couple of different choices here. We could take a purchase requisition and immediately turn that into a purchase order if we know who we're going to get to fulfill that for us. If we don't know who we're going to have fulfill it for us, we can create a request for quotation, which means that we contact different vendors and say, hey, can you sell me a desk like this? And if so, how much for? And then we request quotations, we get quotations, we evaluate those, and we create a purchase order. That's pathway number two here. Pathway number three is really kind of interesting. We create a purchase requisition, we request quotations, and then we just decide to go ahead and issue a purchase order. We kind of don't worry about actually getting the quotations back. I guess it could be a situation where nobody responds to our request for a quotation. So I, I'm not suggesting that pathway three is typical, but it is possible. We could go from request for quotation to just go ahead and, and, and putting out a purchase order if we're tired of, of waiting around. This looks like a good place for us to stop at this point, and so we will do so. Um, I hope that you have a good rest of the week, and I'll look forward to seeing you guys next week. On Tuesday, we might be able to finish up the rest of the purchasing process. Have a good rest of the day.